Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is episode number 94, released on November 7th, 2018. Today we'll talk about the digital services tax in the UK and the funding ground for Click and Grow from Estonia. We also have a pre-recorded interview with Christian Nagel, co-founder and managing partner at Early Bird. We're also going to talk about upcoming events and share books and stories we have come across recently and that we would like you to check out too. I am your host, Andre Degelor, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today by Natalie Novik. As usual, our research analyst and feature writer. Hi, Natalie. How is it going? Hi, Andre. I'm doing well. How are you today? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm great. So just for the context, we are recording this right before the web summit starts in Lisbon. So I do hope that uh, by the time you're going to be listening to it, you have had a great fun at the conference. Natalie, what are your plans there? My plans are to meet with as many people as possible and take in a number of really interesting panels. Tech.eu will be doing a press conference for the media on the 6th, which is the day previous before this comes out. So hope maybe you'll see us in the news. Um, we'll be releasing really interesting report with some partners, but we'll talk about that next week and go into more detail. So if by the time you listen to this podcast, you have not checked out the report yet, check out the show notes. We will put the right link in there. So it's time to start looking at the news of the past week, starting from the largest deal of the week. Natalie, which one is it this time? Yeah, so the largest deal of last week went to Monzo. The UK fintech has now become a unicorn with a new investment round of 85 million pounds. The company now boasts more than a million users. And really, the fintech competition in the UK is heating up very strong this year. So another unicorn gains its horn or wings. So congratulations to Monzo. So if you're interested in learning more and getting some more analysis about funding rounds around Europe, please check out our paid subscription where we share all of those um, with you every week. Yeah, that's a pretty impressive round. Welcome to the Unicorn Club, Monzo. I guess the club is actually becoming pretty big, so we probably should come up with something new like 10x Unicorn or 100x Unicorn just to kind of make some distinction uh, between them. In the meantime, it is time for the rest of our stories. I will start with the first one. Let's talk about taxes first. One of the biggest news stories from last week is that the UK plans to introduce what it's called a digital services tax that will target tech giants. So first, I will uh, put together a few facts about the proposal and then uh, talk a little bit about uh, the context and what it could mean. So fact number one, according to the proposal, uh, the tax will target companies that are profitable and making at least 500 million pounds a year in global revenues. That's about 517 million euros. Fact number two, the tax only applies to companies working in three spaces, search engines, social networking and online marketplaces. Translating from English to English, we're talking first and foremost about Google, Facebook and Amazon. 
Fact number three, the tax will take 2% of the UK revenue of the companies that check all the boxes. So it won't be calculated based on profits as it usually happens because it's kind of proven useless in this case. Just to add some context right here, in 2017, Amazon paid 1.7 million pounds in the UK taxes on profits of 72.4 million pounds. This is 2.3% of the profits, not even of the revenues. So basically it is next to nothing which kind of explains why this sort of proposal has been made at all. Fact number four, the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, Philip Hammond, who introduced the proposal, said that it's expected to raise more than £400 million per year. Uh, that's some €455 million. Euros, and honestly, that doesn't sound like a lot, which is kind of surprising. Fact number five, the tax will come into effect if nothing changes in April 20. This is about 18 months from now. These are the facts. Nothing else really has been clarified yet, so we don't know how exactly the new tax would be implemented. All we know is that Hammond said that the tax would be, I quote, carefully designed to ensure it is established tech giants rather than our tech startups that shoulder the burden, quote ends. What happened next after the proposal was announced uh, during the last week is not surprising at all. First of all, uh, business groups uh, and trade bodies from the US, together with the country authorities, criticized the proposal very strongly. Uh, there is a story on the BBC that details the reaction. I will just quote... Representative Kevin Brady, who said the following, quote begins, If the United Kingdom or other countries proceed, that will prompt a review of our U.S. tax and regulatory approach to determine what actions are appropriate to ensure a level playing field in global markets, quote ends. Another uh, person from uh, the same uh, part of uh, the industry called Rufus Yerksa, the president of the National Foreign Trade Council in the US, also said that the new tax could, I quote, complicate the United Kingdom's push for deeper US-UK trade relations, quote ends. So the US trade bodies are concerned. Uh, they are kind of threatening the UK and no one really knows how this all going to play out. But what I wanted to emphasize here uh, is that that one of the main reasons for the UK to plan this new tax is that the body that was supposed to work on a similar regulation across the whole world is just being incredibly slow. Uh, I'm talking here about uh, an organization called the OECD, and that's uh, the abbreviation that stands for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. In 2013, the OECD released a manifesto calling for the worldwide tax reform, and supposedly it also started working on something more material that same year. It's been five years since then, it's now 2018, uh, but nothing has been released yet, nothing materialized. Uh, currently, the OECD promises to show a concrete action plan, not even something more material, in 2020. This lack of speed, of course, can kind of be explained by the fact that the organization has uh, more than 100 members, so reaching consensus is probably extremely hard there. What also is worth mentioning, though, is that uh, the European Commission 
proposed a very similar tax uh, back in March this year. You might remember that. Uh, it was talking about uh, taking 3% of revenues of internet companies with global revenues higher than 750 million euros. So a bit bigger share uh, from uh, companies with a bit larger revenues. This one, uh, though, was really strongly opposed by many European tech firms. There were like 16 companies uh, signing a joint uh, letter to the European Commission saying that this is a bad thing to do and uh, really the proposal hasn't really gotten anywhere at all. So here we are now in the front row watching whether the UK can make the taxation system for the internet companies in Europe a little bit fairer. I guess we're going to find out soon enough. It's going to be 18 months until the proposal comes into effect. So we're about to see. Natalie, do you think it makes any sense at all, this sort of taxation system? I think it's sending an important message. In Europe, we're often pretty open about talking about how we should regulate firms and that firms should be paying more tax for the earnings that they are taking in in Europe. We've seen a lot of criticism from companies like Apple that have opened up subsidiaries in places like Ireland that are subject to lower different types of corporate gains taxes. So I think it's maybe a move in the right direction, but especially in the UK, a lot can change in 18 months, especially considering the very big date on the calendar next year with Brexit. So it's hard to say, but I think it sends an important message. Right. So it's time to get uh, going with our next uh, story. And this one is about a funding round for a company called Click and Grow coming from Estonia. Natalie, can you tell us more about uh, this round and why it's actually interesting? Yeah. So Andre wrote about Click and Grow on tech.eu earlier this week, but Click and Grow is an Estonian startup that produces indoor gardens. So it's a hardware product and these little smart gardens let you grow different types of herbs and vegetables indoors. And the name Click and Grow comes from the special pods of soil and seeds that you click into the device. So the big announcement is that the company has just landed an $11 million funding deal led by United Angels VC and a number of strategic corporate partners, among them Inca Group and the SEB Alliance. Inca Group, you might have heard of them, the parent company of IKEA. And they're very interested in their product to be using it in store, helping to serve their customers more nutritious foods in their restaurants. So I wanted to highlight this story for a number of reasons. First, it's a really great success story for Estonia. This small country has really been the origin of a number of great companies, but it also emphasizes this point that great ideas and great companies can really come from anywhere. And also I wanted to mention them because it's a great story about persistence. And even in startups where there's a real importance of taking a long-term view for a company, even though so often we talk about moving quickly. So the idea for Click and Grow began in 2005 when CEO and founder Matthias Lepp became inspired after reading about NASA's effort to grow plants in space. The first prototype for their smart garden concept was built out of a cardboard box. And he spent the next four years working to develop the right soil mix that would help give plant roots support and help them grow in a small amount of substrate. 
So after all of that development, uh, the company was founded four years later in 2009, and it's stayed really small, and they won their first entrepreneurship competition in Estonia in 2010. And this helped give the company some support and some further encouragement. And he began working with designers in Denmark and then in Finland to produce the concept and really bring this dream into reality. So by 2013, the company started building its first community by, and launched a Kickstarter campaign, eventually raising over $600,000. And then in 2015, one decade on from their initial idea, the company joined Y Combinator. So Click and Grow has really gone from strength to strength. And now we're nearly 13 years on from the first initial idea. And they've received this huge level of investment. So it's a great story about persistence and not giving up and importantly shows that some of the best things don't happen instantaneously. All in all, Click and Grow has raised over 17 million US dollars in investment so far. So on his blog, um, the founder Matthias has some really important advice for founders. And he says, quote, the most important thing is to survive and do whatever it takes. What we have seen with Click and Grow is that the first five years, you don't see much of anything in regards to profit. And the next two to three years, you really start to grow within that field. So to survive that period is extremely important. You just have to survive the first five years. It can be cruel, but until those five years are up, you can't really tell if your product is right or what to really change, end quote. All in all, I really like the concept of the company and really their effort of sustainability. There are a number of cool and interesting companies in Europe working on indoor gardening, and I am a home gardener myself. It's one of my big pastimes. And if you know IKEA, the investor in this round, in Europe, they have a similar home gardening concept available in their stores. The click and grow system is a bit more expensive than IKEA's option, and they have systems that grow anywhere between three and 51 plants. But according to reviews of Click and Grow, it seems the product is incredibly forgiving and has given some kind of brown thumb gardener some really great results. So there's lots of glowing reviews out there. I don't know if you're looking for a Christmas present, but maybe it's something you want to consider, especially as we're going into this cold, dark European winter. And hyper-local gardening is not only good for the planet, but it's good for you. Gardening is very relaxing and a very healthy pastime. So I would encourage anyone to give it a try. And I really love to see new innovations in this space, especially ones that allow individual consumers to be more sustainable. And you might not know, but the potted plant industry in Europe and those fresh herbs that you can buy in the grocery store are among some of the worst offenders for producing non-recyclable plastics. Those black plant pods, they often can't be recycled, even though they're made out of a recyclable material. Due to their color, they have a difficulty being recycled. So hyperlocal gardening is certainly a greener alternative, and I think it's a really exciting product and worth checking out. You almost sold me, but I still I'm not sure I should try it just because I'm pretty sure that even being this forgiven, this kind of uh, herbs will just die really soon in my place just because I kind of almost almost always forget to water things and stuff like that. And that's one of the the cool things about the product is you only have to water it maybe every two weeks or so. Uh, there's a reservoir and it seems to really take a lot of the challenge out of gardening, kind of taking it down to a science. I'd be interested to try it out. I don't know how I haven't used it myself, but maybe it's a good Christmas present for you, Andre. 
But would it still be interesting for you if you are like more sort of advanced gardener? Would it still be interesting for you to uh, try this one? Well, in Scotland, you certainly can't grow a lot of the things that I'm used to grow back home in California. So I would be interested in trying it out, especially for herbs like rosemary and basil that don't really do very well outside here. Oh, I thought you were talking about weed. <laughs> there is some ideas. I, I think it might be an interesting thing to try. And people that love gardening really will try to garden wherever they can. So indoors, I'm open to trying it out. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to check it out, though. And yeah, it seems like it's a really good thing for the dark winter because it has these LED lights in the, in the handle, right? So it kind of always shines onto the, onto the herbs that are, or whatever you're growing. Now, it's time for our pre-recorded interview of the day. Uh, this is a conversation with uh, Christian Nagel, the co-founder and managing partner at Early Bird. Uh, this one uh, was recorded by our founding editor, Robin Wouters, uh, back at the Zero. 100 conference in Berlin. Uh, check this one out and we will be back in a few minutes uh, with the events announcements and uh, story recommendations. Uh, so Robin Walters here from uh, TechRU. I'm here in Berlin at the Zero 100 conference and here with Dr. Christian Nagel, uh, partner at Early Bird. Uh, can you briefly introduce uh, yourself and the fund? Yes, um, so um, I'm partner of Early Bird. Um, I'm one of the co-founders also of Early Bird. Uh, we are in the business since uh, more than 20 years. So we, we last year actually celebrated our 20th birthday. So that's a kind of, uh, thank you. Yeah, it's a long, long time, but uh, adventure is a long-term business. So that somehow matches. Uh, but at least we made it through the cycles. We are now the largest German-based venture fund. We have under management a bit more than a billion euros. Um, and we started to specialize. So our, where we started, we had just one fund and then a couple Years ago, we decided basically it makes sense to specialize somehow, first of all, geographically. So now we have a fund, a digital, a digital fund focusing on Western Europe, and a second fund focusing on Eastern Europe. And we have a third fund um, focusing on medical technologies. So currently, we have three funds in the market. Um, the sizes are between 100 and 175. It's the latest we just raised on the early stage for digital tech uh, um, in for Western, Western Europe. Um, and so this is the size size we funds we have um, pretty large team uh, uh, subs subsequent to this um, 15 partners um, almost 50 in, in total um, um, venture is a in, basically <laughs> intense labor intense business and 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 so that's why they're quite quite sizable team and um, well, you mentioned these three funds like two of them are geographical yeah. focused ones and the other one sector sector focus yeah. specific vertical and why yeah. did you pick that vertical did you have previous success stories in that yeah. or do you have, just have a lot of experience indeed it's kind of so the, the first investment we ever did was a medtech investment. Uh, so, and we always had a, we didn't allocate. It kind of it happened that it always has been between 15 and 20 percent allocation for medical technologies. And then uh, we suddenly realized that, well, it may make sense maybe to to, to create an own fund, uh, uh, complement the team, um, because in the end you're talking to a different types of limited partners um, some really like it some hate it so kind of this this thing and we rather thought it would be good to give them the choice and uh, also basically increase team size um, and the interesting thing first first um, investment we made was a medtech investment in the founder he joined now this 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 fund as a partner so it's also a good 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 thing obviously to have these uh, exactly so that's why uh, we thought it would be good to basically give limited partners the choice and, and, and the limited partners who like both they can still invest in, in both opportunities we have limited partners who decided to invest in all three. So they had an interest in the geographies, 
and also in this specific um, sector. Very so, interesting. Yeah. Um, so how bullish are you on the Berlin startup system while we're here? Well, I'm kind of biased, obviously, because we, we took the decision already six years ago to, to move from Hamburg to, 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 to Berlin and uh, and close down the Hamburg office. So that's that's what many people in Hamburg regret, but uh, but uh, for good reason. And I think it was very, very wise at that point in time to take this decision to move here, to become part of the ecosystem. And this had paid off very well, I must say. Has it evolved um, in the way that you would have predicted six years ago? Uh, actually, yes. Uh, I mean, it can always go faster and we are kind of impatient persons. As we see, you always want things happen faster and uh, because we know that things always take longer and take more money. So that's why. why uh, but in the, in the end, yes, I must say. And uh, some some of the things have really turned to, to, the, to the much better, I must say. So we see more and more corporate engagement here, which I didn't expect at that point in time that this is really happening. And uh, starting with the US corporates, um, so the Googles, the Facebooks, and, and so on, Cisco, and uh, they all are engaging here, or have engaged quite some time ago already. Now we see all the German corporates engaging here, and even more so from other countries. So that's that's very, very encouraging, because this was the missing piece somehow uh, compared to, to other ecosystems, because there's no natural, basically, ground for, for big corporates here in, in, in Berlin. There's nothing, you know, there's a startup scene, and, uh, and that's it. Yeah. So that, that has to be a little better. I think we see, um, it's also become somehow more attractive in general. So we see more and more teams coming from everywhere. So typically we invest in teams not coming from Germany, not coming from Berlin, uh, founders coming from from, from anywhere. Um, maybe they teamed up with some then German team members, but we see very, very, very diverse teams, which is also a big positive um, when it comes to expansion. Because also the German market is not large enough. I mean, Israel, it's clear that they don't have a market, but in Germany, the market is also not large enough. And we want to go after the big things. And then you'd have to have a team with a global mindset. And uh, this is normally good. Then you have, if you have kind of diversity within the team built in. Uh, sort of build, building on the last part of your answer there, um, do you see any particular differences between the Eastern-focused and the Western-Europe-focused uh, fund in terms of the quality of the founders or the quality of the businesses in question? Yeah. In some cases, it feels like the, in Eastern European opportunities we see, it's like 10 years back or five years, something like back. So they're, 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 they're behind in, in some ways. Um, but I think they, they will catch up in a way. So it's, it's, I think, harder to find teams with really global aspirations like UiPath. You probably heard the news that they raised um, uh, money yeah. from Sequoia. Um, Romanian founders. Exactly. So that, that's a kind of really something not too easy to find, you know, with uh, so founders with really global aspirations going abroad very quickly, you know, and these kind of things. You don't find that often, but on the other hand, it's a big territory they're covering from the Baltics down to Turkey. So, and, and, and I'm sure they will find more of these, these type of companies. But I think it's still the, the market, if you say, well, we're still not on par with the U.S. ecosystems, you know, but very, very hard to com com compare anyways. But if you compare within Europe, obviously, they're still still behind and, and, and they have to catch up. Um, you're actively interested in investing in um, the blockchain cryptocurrency space. Mm -hmm. Can you briefly elaborate on the strategy on that? A particular element? Yeah, well, we always say we, another another buzzword would be AI. So that would be the next buzzword, which which everybody is, is using nowadays. We always say we don't invest in AI and in blockchain because in the, in the end you, you can't you can eat it. You know, you have to make a business out of this and to make sense. So that's why we always look for, and this goes for AI, but there was a question over blockchain. We always look for applications there, so for, for the business and for the business model behind. So we wouldn't invest in just something because there is something new, you know, protocol or something. Uh, it has to. Has to have a meaning, has to 
make sense. It has to basically make things better or different and, and or improve things. Uh, make really step in a step function, not just kind of incremental thing. So this is something we were more looking are more looking for in terms of where are really the applications. And the good thing is we see applications everywhere, so more and more over. And um, and one of our focus areas is fintech. We have done a lot of in fintech, and we thought actually with the last fund, okay, the fintech wave would be over somehow. So that that that's it. Now with blockchain or crypto technologies, I think we see the next big wave of um, applications um, where fintech plays a big role, um, smart contracts all, all, and the like. So changing really processes, basically taking out function functionalities um, uh, and, 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 and processes which are very cumbersome today, which you can make much, much, much easier. But on the other hand, we also see many good ideas, but they take a long time to implement. So it's, it's not so easy basically to find the right um, concepts, ideas, which are also close to market. Um, because nowadays, it's uh, every of the corporates, they are all doing POCs with whatever is coming up because they all like to be associated or want to basically engage somehow. But the question is, will this then really become a business in a, in a meaningful time, time frame? That's, that's always, the, or in many cases, the question. Um, so in that particular um, sector, the financing is also, uh, you could say a lot about the financing uh, on yeah. the ICO um, <clears throat> side of things. So basically you have yeah. an alternative way of financing that for better or worse, uh, mm -hmm. how do you see the state of the ICO and how as a venture capitalist, how do you look at this yeah. solution? Well, we obviously we're uh, watching this and, 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 and discussing this also and, and question also, also ourselves in terms of is VC going away or, or becoming less meaningful in, in, in that sense. And obviously, if you, if you see how easy it's, it is or it has been to raise money, then you could question why do you need the VCs? What do you need the VCs for? Uh, on the other hand, you see also many projects which are not working. So people may realize, well, okay, just spreading the money is maybe not the right, right and wise thing to do. So because they realize only later, and once they got the money, it takes some time to spend the money and then then what, what then? Is there a business model? Is there something has been created with some value or was it just a kind of the blip and then they live through the money? So that's, um, that's something we should, so what I want to say is you, in the end, you need, somebody needs to take a serious um, view on things and make a proper due diligence on things and, and try to find out whether that makes sense, whether there's a proper team in place, whether there's a trustful team in place, you know, all these kind of things somebody has to do. And you can obviously do a lot of things online, but in the end, it's also good to meet people and and, and decide on on, on, on on meeting whether it makes sense to, to basically to invest in, in someone. So that's why I think this function needs to be taken over by someone. Will it be the VCs in the old model? I'm also not sure. We're discussing what to do and what to change here also, but, but clearly it has become a, a very serious uh, source of, of financing. And, and it's also what I like very much about it. Basically, it also dem democratizes um, venture capital further. So because so far it was only accessible for, for approved investors, for kind of pension funds or for family offices with large chunks of money. So this is what I really like because now basically everyone could technically invest into something, but obviously some guidance would help because otherwise people may just may just lose lose money and and, and this kind of gambling they can also gamble, uh, which may also not lead to to a sustainable success. And uh, there's definitely some middle ground to cover there. Um, yeah. But do you look at these companies, these crypto projects, in the same way that you would evaluate any other investment? Yes, basically yes, exactly the same way because in the end it comes it comes to we we don't we don't expect basically the windfall you know through maybe an 
SEO where you have some money which you can then distribute or, or whatever with this. We don't see it like this. We really want to build or help building sustainable companies with a huge vision, with a large upside potential. And for this, you have to understand some of the business, at least have some ideas and visions of what, 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 what could it be. Sure. Um, how do you think early birth itself is going to change as a venture capital firm in terms of structure in the next, let's say, five to ten years? Um, Yeah, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. What, no, we, we're discussing this. We're actually discussing this, this idea of becoming more, more or dem, dem, democratize the venture, the access to, to this asset class. I think it's something we, we really want to go after. So we were thinking now basically whether or not to structure the next fund as a tokenized fund. So that basically, which, which gives you a lot of advantages, obviously, because you can go in and out at any time and don't, no, don't need to wait this 10 years, which turned out to be in many cases 12 years or even longer. So that, this gives a lot of more flexibility and also if you structure it right then hopefully give more people access to, to the asset class, which I think would be very beneficial for, for everyone. Um, and to overcome the situation in the US, you have pension funds investing into VC and endowments and basically it's, it's everybody, everybody's money. Yeah. And as you have different uh, systems here, it's not so, but that's why it would be a good way to allow everyone to participate in this. I mean, this is our thinking in terms of maybe uh, tokenize the fund, or at least have two funds, you know, one maybe a traditional one investing parallel with a kind of more tokenized one. I'd be very interested in seeing that. And I think you're speaking on a panel later on about cryptocurrency yes, investments. So exactly. we'll look forward to that. Uh, what do you hope to get out of the 0100 conference here? Well, it's always good to meet people and to, to catch up with people I haven't seen for, for quite some time. So that, that was always good to, to meet and uh, engage with people. Well, it's always good to meet you. Uh, thank you for the update and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu, episode number 94, released November 7. This is still me, Andrei Degler, joined today by Natalie Novik. And we are going to talk about uh, the events coming up in the calendar in Europe uh, over the next few weeks. Natalie, where are you going? What can you recommend? All right, so it's the first week of November, and for most people in Europe, that means Web Summit. And I'll be there as well. Um, and it's a huge month, really, for entrepreneurship events. And we're in the middle of this crazy fall. I'll be at Web Summit. A lot of other people will be. I think 65,000 people are expected to be there. So I hope to catch a number of you there. And please say hi if you're there. So following Web Summit, going on from November 12th to 18th is Global Entrepreneurship Week. And this is an event that takes place each November. And more than 165 countries take part in it. So there's bound to be a number of interesting events going on in your neck of the woods. So do check out their website. We put it in the show notes to see what might be happening near you. Next, on November 15th in Berlin is Investors Day and Beta Pitch Global, where the 12 finalists of the Beta House regional competitions come together in Berlin to pitch for an additional prize and a trip to Silicon Valley. I have a soft spot for Beta House Berlin, and I've spent a lot of time at at least at their old location, co-working there. And I've been to the beta pitch event before, and it's a great, I have a bit crazy event. So if you're in Berlin, November 15th, don't miss it. And then also from November 12th to 16th, we have a number of Techstar startup weeks going on around the continent. So in Valencia, Catania, in Sicily, Chemnitz, in Zagreb, Croatia, you have Techstar startup weeks going on for that entire week. 
I really love Techstar Startup Weeks because it's a great window into the local tech ecosystem. And I think they're just a, a really awesome community event all around. And it's great because it shows that the ecosystem, that this tech and entrepreneurship ecosystem that we're all operating in is one that's truly global, but it has a lot of incredible things happening at very local level with community leaders and organizers that really try to put things together to get people into entrepreneurship. And it's a really big job to put on one of these events. And I know because I'm one of the track captains of the Dublin Startup Week that's taking place later this month. So if you're local to any of these events, go out and celebrate the excellent community effort that's taking place in all of these really cool cities. So these events and more are on our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, let us know. Uh, The link is in our show notes. Great. Sounds like a busy time still. We have another month and a half to go uh, before the Christmas break and the Christmas hibernation time. So try to get as much of the season as possible. And it's time to fast forward to our uh, story recommendation part. And uh, my recommendation today goes like this. Influencer marketing is bullshit. At least this is uh, uh, what uh, Matthew Hughes uh, from The Next Web is saying. And uh, actually, I do tend to agree with a lot of his points uh, that uh, are made in his recent opinion piece on The Next Web as well. Uh, Long story short, uh, it seems like the influencer marketing industry is extremely overblown and is teeming with fraudsters. Uh, So everyone in seven influencers, according to a research, who agree to promote a product actually end up taking the goods but failing to produce the content around it. Also, of course, a lot of so-called influencers are just using all sorts of uh, shady methods, let's say, of inflating uh, their reach numbers, like likes and comments and all that. That's mostly paid interactions and uh, using uh, bots and stuff like that. And there is basically no way for anyone in the industry to hold these people accountable. The piece uh, really details quite a few uh, situations uh, that uh, brand can get into uh, when using influencer marketing. I will just leave you with uh, one quote from it, but uh, I would definitely encourage you to go and check it out in full. The quote begins, by and large, the influencer marketing space is rife with fraud. It's like if Herbalife and Amway had a love child and the baby insisted on perpetually talking shite into a camera, quote ends. So go check it out. It's a really, really interesting story. Now, Natalie, can you tell us uh, your recommendation? I consider it's going to be about uh, Blizzard. It's got to be interesting. Yeah. So my recommendation this week is maybe more of a cautionary tale and Perhaps it's the most cringeworthy thing that I've seen recently. And it comes to you from across the pond about BlizzCon, which is the annual showcase from Blizzard, the Southern California games developer. But if you're not into gaming, don't turn this off because I think it has some important lessons for everyone, founders, investors, no matter what vertical you're in. I think we can really learn something from this case. But if you're a gamer or you're into esports, you'll know Blizzard as the creator of a number of classic games such as StarCraft, Warcraft, Overwatch, Hearthstone, and Diablo. But even if you don't, it's a huge company and it has a lot of presence in Europe as well. They have offices in The Hague, in Cork, in Ireland, and in Versailles. 
So the games that they produce are largely PC games. And what sets them apart is their real-world gameplay and strong cinematics. And they have quite a dedicated fan base. And to support this fan base, they have this annual BlizzCon showcase every year. And it kicked off last Friday. And the company uses this event to announce new releases and bring the community together. You have lots of people doing cosplay, tons of reporters, and lots and lots of players of these games. So last year, the BlizzCon event had over 35,000 people in attendance, with thousands more buying virtual tickets to watch online around the globe. This year has been a similar thing. That's how strong the fandom is. But a few months back, the company began teasing a possible development for their Diablo franchise, one of the company's games that's been overlooked for a few years. The initial game in this series was released in 1996, so fans of this series really had a long relationship with this product and the world that it's set in. But Blizzard hasn't done much with it in years. But despite this, the Diablo games remain really popular and they command a huge committed fan base. And speaking to this, one of the games in the series, Diablo 2, which was released in 2000, still commands tens of thousands of active daily players online every day for an 18-year-old game. So it is quite a very committed fan base there. So the fans are really excited about a development here, and speculation was building over the different announcements that were coming forward at BlizzCon. And also across gaming message boards, the excitement kept growing as fans were looking at Blizzard's recruitment listings around the globe and saw that they were hiring lots of people to work on Diablo products. Many speculated that there would be an announcement of a remastery of the Diablo 2 or a new game in the franchise, this Diablo 4 anticipated product, and people were really excited. But when it came to the big announcement on the main stage, Blizzard announced a new game, but on mobile. And the reaction from the crowd was like almost near total silence and some boos were ringing out. And many really speculated it was, it was like people were in shock. And the mobile game announcement immediately turned off many of the franchise's hardcore fans who are PC gamers. And the fallout of this was immediate and happening in real time, a huge disconnect from the community. And you could see on the live chat from the live stream, it was just abominable how people were reacting to this announcement because it was hyped so much. The clips on YouTube of the announcement were really brutal. And when the company went into a live Q&A on stage, things only got worse. The presenter didn't even look or sound very confident in the product either after that reception. And Blizzard has had to disable comments on YouTube for the trailer for the game and also re-uploaded a few times because of the amount of downvotes or dislikes for the product. One clip had... 169,000 dislikes appearing just hours after the public release. Another had 240,000 dislikes to 350 likes before it was taken down. And lots of fans are citing the reaction to the buildup and also the feeling very much let down precisely because of the framing around the release. They were really thinking that the company was going to be delivering this really long-awaited product. So this core user group has this feeling of being neglected. And I think this experience has some important lessons for anyone. Of course, the PR for this release was really a misstep. But kind of beyond this, I would say kind of the first lesson, don't 
ignore your community or fan base. And secondly, don't overpromise and underdeliver. And as we're seeing in companies and tech companies, especially the role of the community and especially that core group of users is really important. And especially when you're doing things like crowdfunding or equity crowdfunding rounds, this reputation, it follows you. And those people, those initial people that come on board your product, the first to take a chance on you, the first to trust you, or those that have stuck with you for years, decades even, it's really hard to win that trust back. And now with everything being put online, that reputation is one that's visible. And if you're a company like Blizzard, where you have $7 billion in revenue every year, maybe it's easier to kind of come back from that. But if you're a startup or a much smaller company with less reputation and less of a community behind you, you don't want to kind of promise something that you can't follow up on. And you see it with these failed Kickstarters all the time. So with that being said, even though the stock price tanked after the announcement, I think that Blizzard will probably have a lot of success with the game. It's likely to attract maybe a new audience, but perhaps the cost of leaving some of the company's most hardcore fans and users behind. So I think it's a cautionary tale, something that really has generated a lot of attention online in the last couple of days. And I think something that we really can all learn from no matter what sort of industry that we're working working in that branding and messaging is so important. I'm pretty sure Blizzard is going to be fine after all that, but uh, this is just spectacular. The hype train basically hitting the wall. It's absolutely amazing. And uh, I, But I have to say that Blizzard is a very well-diversified company, let's put it this way. They have so many different uh, franchises, and uh, I think Diablo is uh, far from the biggest of them. So, yeah, I don't think it's going to have a really big uh, hit on them. But uh, this, this is a great story and this is absolutely something for us all in the entrepreneurship ecosystem to remember as what not to do. And it's about time to wrap it up for today. This is it. We hope you have enjoyed listening to us today. Don't miss our new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify. Just look for tech.eu podcast and you will find us. Tell everyone for whom it would be relevant about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. Please feel free to email us with any, and I mean any, questions, suggestions and opinions at andri.tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Have fun in Lisbon. Thanks so much, Andre. And to anyone out there that's listening, if you have a really cool indoor or outdoor gardening project or product that um, I should check out, let me know. And that goes for everyone. If you have some cool recommendations of companies or products, please share them with us. We always like hearing about what's new coming up in the European tech ecosystem. In the meantime, take care enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next wednesday bye